A certain man wanted to sell his house in Haiti, the Caribbean, for $2,000. Another man wanted to buy it, but because he was poor, he couldn't afford the full price. After much bargaining back and forth, uh, the original owner settled on offering it at half price with a single caveat. He would retain ownership of this little nail protruding from just above the front door. Several years went by and the original owner wanted to buy the house back, but the new owner refused. So the original owner went out and found the, the carcass of a dead dog and hung it from the single nail he still owned. Eventually it became unlivable and the, the uh, family had to sell it to the original owner. The moral of the story is, if we leave the devil even one small peg in our lives, he will return to hang his rotting garbage on it, making it unlivable, uninhabitable for Christ. And that's what a believer is. A Christian is a temple of the spirit of the living God. Jesus doesn't want to leave the devil even one small peg in our life. So he tells his disciples in today's passage that refraining from murder and, and adultery and fornication isn't enough to keep Satan from hanging a, a, his garbage, his influencing and corrupting garbage in our lives and tempting us, making us unfit for Christ's habitation. The glory of God will depart. His uh, joy, and the joy of the Lord is our strength and, and his peace and his hope. It will depart if we allow anger or lust to rot our souls. And in a day when preachers are reluctant to speak about the consequences of sin, we might find Jesus's warning uncomfortably hot as he turns up the heat against corruption and, and hurtful thoughts and attitudes. We pick up our study in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever shall say you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. This is Jesus speaking, so hopefully he's got our attention. First of all, this kind of teaching blew their minds astonished the people because he was teaching as one with authority. He would begin with, you have heard, and he would quote from the Old Testament, but I say to you, and then he would give it its fuller meaning. The characteristic phrase of the prophet, you may remember, was, thus says the Lord. He claimed no personal authority at all, and, and neither did the scribe or the rabbi, but Jesus deferred to no one but himself. The result was, Matthew 7, 28, that the multitudes were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. One thing the scribes were noted for, however, was the keeping of the law. They didn't spit or chew or goal with girls that do. They were good boys, and that, of course, just sensed, uh, served to fuel their sense of self-righteousness but Jesus exposed the law for being spiritual in nature. 
In other words, the transgression isn't restricted to the hurtful act, but reaches down to the very thoughts and intentions of the heart. In verse 21, Jesus said, the act of murder made one liable to the court. He goes on to say that being angry with someone yields the same result. It's not the same level of offense, but it yielded the same result in that they were guilty before the court. That is referring to the local court of their village, their town, or their region. If you say to someone, raka, which, which means stupid, idiot, with contempt, it had an edge to it, challenging their intelli intelligence, he said you were guilty enough to go before the Supreme Court. In other words, you'd have to travel to Jerusalem from wherever you were and stand before the 70-member Sanhedrin or the Supreme Court of Israel. And if you say, you fool, literally moros, from which we get moron, challenging their character, murdering their reputation, degrading someone made in the image of God, he said, you shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. William Barclay puts it this way, Jesus forbids forever the anger which broods, the anger which will not forget, the anger which refuses to be pacified, the anger which seeks revenge. There was a um, song that came out in during the Jesus movement, and many of you have uh, watched the trailer or seen the movie that just came out, Jesus Revolution. It, it traces the last great spiritual awakening in America and throughout the world. It happened less than 60 years ago. And during that time, I remember um, the songs that were sung, songs like, we will walk with each other. We will walk side by side. We will guard each man's dignity and save each man's pride. They will know we are Christians by our love, by our love. We will know we are Christians by our love. I, I, this attitude of being careful to guard the other person's dignity, not to embarrass or, or, or put them down, and to save their pride in the best sense of the word. The overarching point Jesus is making is that God looks at the heart. He measures the attitude, not just the actions. In God's economy, therefore, no one is good or righteous. All fall short of the glory of God because our, our hearts are subject to anger and bitterness and resentment and all those things. This was the very revelation that the law was sent to produce. Romans 3.19 says, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, those that are trying to earn God's favor through their own strength and goodness. He says, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be satisfied in his sight. For by the law comes the knowledge of sin. Hebrews 7.19 says, The law made nothing perfect. We could not become somehow acceptable to God through the keeping of these commandments. Yet Jesus says in verse 48, at the end of chapter 5, that the standard for 
entrance into heaven and friendship with God is just that. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. (laughs) That maybe also sobers us and gets our attention. The keeping of the law means nothing perfect because the law is spiritual, judging again the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The purpose of the law, therefore, is that all the world may become guilty before God. So we need to stop striving and humbly receive his free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, who did live a perfect life and knew no sin, who died for sins, says in 1 Peter 3.18, the once for all. In other words, they didn't need to continue continually let the blood of sacrificial animals for a temporal covering of our sin. He died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he would bring us to God. Not only do we receive peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ, but he gives us his spirit, enabling us to live at peace with man, with one another. Now Jesus gives a couple of practical examples of how to do just that, picking up in Matthew 5, verse 23. If, therefore, you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way in order that your opponent may not deliver you to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you shall not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. One of the first, uh, in the first scenario here, the Lord appears to be addressing the innocent party. While that person is preparing to worship the Lord, he remembers that someone has something against them through, through no fault of their own. Someone is holding a grudge against them, and they remember that. In that moment, the mature response of the innocent party is to immediately and humbly seek to resolve the conflict. In the second scenario, the Lord is addressing the guilty party, encouraging them to nip the offense in the bud by immediately and humbly seeking to apologize and make amends before it gets out of control and gets ugly. Young Danny was praying at mother's knee, if I should die before I wake, if I should die. Go on, Danny, said his mother. You know the rest of the prayer. Wait a minute, interrupted the small boy. Scrambling to his feet, he hurried downstairs. In a short time, he was back, dropping to his knees again. He took up the petition where he had laid off. Finally, his mother questioned him about the episode and issued a loving rebuke. Danny explained, Mom, I did think about what I was saying, but I had to stop and put all of Ted's toy soldiers on their feet. I had turned them on their head just to see how mad he would be in the morning. But if I die before I wake, I wouldn't want him to find them like that. Most of you have heard about the Asbury University Revival near Lexington, Kentucky, how their chapel service on Wednesday didn't end. It just went on and on, all day, all night, the next day and night, the next day and night. 
very exciting stuff. But what you probably are not aware of is the reconciliation of strained relationships that happened. One person, a student at the university uh, who was interviewed said that it's a small university and everybody knows what's going on in relational dynamics and who's mad at who and who's not talking to who, who's bearing a grudge. But he said during this revival, they would find enemies together at the altar praying and then hugging one another. Keep short accounts with those on the grieving, or shoot, on the giving or receiving end of an offense. Adopt a humble spirit. Be the first one to own what is yours in the predicament and apologize. Remember Jesus, who though totally undeserving of all that was laid upon him, prayed from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's a great image that what I think if we will remember that, we'll keep from allowing the, the, the tentacles of bitterness to just wrap around our hearts. He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do as he reconciled the world to himself. From murder of the heart, Jesus now moves to adultery of the heart. Verse 27. You've heard that it is said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in their heart. Again, Jesus gives the fuller explanation and meaning of the seventh commandment that it is spiritual goes beyond the physical act of adultery or fornication to the fantasizing of illicit relationships in the heart. I believe one reason divorce and fornication is rampant in America is because we have legitimized lust. We just wink at it. It's just, you know, the heart wants what it's, the heart wants and we're victims, basically. The movie industry diligently teaches us that there's no such thing as forbidden fruit. There is no moral code to live by, no absolutes, no commitment necessary. We're encouraged to be like the roaming buffalo who know nothing of committed love within the sacrament of marriage, but copulate with whoever is willing because, well, that's what animals do. I love the way F.F. F. Bruce puts it. Jesus was tempted in all points as we are. And he's quoting here from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, that every type of temptation that we've experienced, Jesus experienced it as well. The, the temptation is not sin. It's the obsession and the fulfillment and the acting upon it that is sin. Jesus was tempted in all points as we are, but desire... This illicit desire was expelled by the mighty power of a pure love to which every woman was a daughter, a sister, or a betrothed, a sacred object of tender respect. I just, that just seems so right to me. It's so good and precious that we would view women not, uh, you know, as objects of conquest for our own selfish pleasure and temporal desire, 
but we would view them as, as our sister or our daughter, as a woman that is already betrothed to someone else. That would really curb our, our uh, licentious attitude, I think, toward women. And I love this. He said, we treat them as sacred objects of tender respect. Now, write that down. Jesus holds us, believers, to a higher standard than what we see going on in the world because we're not just the top of the food chain. We are children of God, made to honor and glorify God by acting like children of God made in his image. Therefore, he goes on to say, verse 29, And if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to go into hell. Is Jesus encouraging us to mutilate our bodies? Of course not. For one reason, if you pluck out your eye and throw it away, you still have your left eye. If you cut off your hand and throw it away, you still have your left hand. And if you pluck it all and cut it all off, you still have your mind which is very good at sinning. Jesus is saying two things. First of all, he's warning us not to make provision for the flesh. That's the way the Apostle Paul put it. If your right eye makes you stumble, get a filter for the Internet. I mean, the Internet has become indispensable. But get a filter for it. Or delete certain apps on your phone, like the highly addictive TikTok app. Or limit the amount of time on social media for yourself. And if you have children, don't just give it to them and send them to bed. They'll end up sleep depraved because they can't pull themselves away from the screen when they should be sleeping. If your right hand makes you stumble, don't put yourself in a place where you're going to be tempted to act foolishly. If you, for instance, are a recovering alcoholic, you wouldn't hang out in a bar just because you like beer nuts. Don't make provision for the flesh. And second point he's making is that God believes in deterrence. There really is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. The word for hell here in the original language is Gehenna. It's actually Valley of Hena. It refers to the valley southwest of Jerusalem where Ahaz, one of the most ungodly kings of Israel, would sacrifice children to the Canaanite god Moloch. Josiah, when he came to the throne, he put a stop to it, ordering that that val valley would forever after be accursed. By the time of Christ, it had become the city dump, a kind of public incinerator that smoldered continually. The valley of Hanam, or Gehenna, became a synonym for that place of God's destroying power, hell. Just as heaven is a place of eternal bliss, hell is a place of eternal anguish created for Satan and his rebels. But it will be shared by those who refuse God's pardon. In effect, they, unbelievers send themselves there because God has provided everything. Whereby he might, the just who gave his life for the unjust, bring us to God. And we say no. 
We will do it in our own strength and do what seems right in our own eyes. If you have turned to Christ in faith, you have reason to rejoice because this earth, and even though it's a kind of a pale image of God's original design, it still is so gloriously beautiful. We living in the Pacific Northwest know that very well. And you look at it and, and, and our hearts thrill many times with what we are afforded on earth. But if you have received Christ, then the earth and all its glory is the worst you're going to ever know. While we are here, however, let us do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with our God. That's, that's what the Mike, Micah the prophet tells us in Micah 6, 8. What, what does God require of us? And the answer is, do justice, love kindness, walk humbly. And that's what Jesus has been talking about. Move quickly to resolve conflict and promote reconciliation. Don't fixate on the forbidden fruit. For that would be leaving Satan a peg upon which to hang some rotting, corrupting influence, as we said at the beginning of this message. If you have not turned to Christ in faith, do it now. Repent. Turn around. Or, and here's the warning. Jesus is, is very uh, intentional to lay out. Or, if we don't repent, this earth with all of its horror and agony and depression and loneliness and fear, it's going to be the best that you will ever know if you don't repent. For there really is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. Last week I mentioned how Eric Little pulled out of that qualifying race, the 100-meter race, that he was favored to win in the 1924 Olympics. He's representing his country, the United Kingdom. He's from Scotland. He's got the national pride, uh, you know, he, he feels responsible for. And he's also been training for years for this moment. When he found out that the qualifying heat was on a Sunday, he felt that would dishonor God. And so he just pulled out of it. Lord Cadogan, head of the British Olympic Committee, uh, rebuked Eric in front of his fe fellow athletes by looking right at him and declaring in a loud voice, to play the game is the only thing in life that matters. Of course, Eric would disagree. To Eric, in the end, to glorify God was the only thing that mattered. And you know what? Eric is now enjoying the fruit of his conviction. I pray that God would give us a holy passion for the things of God, that we would remember that we are, we are not living for time, but eternity. And we would open up our hearts and offer up our bodies a living sacrifice that we would glorify him in our bodies.